your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me for the first time making his triumphant debut appearance on the show, my good buddy Johnny Lazarus. Johnny, what's going on, man? Dimitri, it's an absolute honor to be here. I'm a big fan of your work, so uh, very excited to be face-to-face and talk some hockey with you here. This is going to be fun, man. We're going to do a New York Rangers deep dive. You know, for a team that has been a top, not only the Eastern Conference, but the entire NHL standings for the majority of the season. I know they slipped up a little bit here over the past couple of weeks, but uh, I haven't spoken nearly enough about this team, it feels like, just because... We've been speaking about him so much as currently constitute over the past couple of years. And I think people generally know what to expect. And I know there's some new parts and there's certainly a new coach and they're playing a bit differently this season, but I've just been kind of preoccupied, I guess, with other stuff going on around the league. And so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to bring you in and talk about this team. What's the vibe check like right now? Because I know that uh, the defense has slipped up a little bit here recently. There's been a few uncharacteristic performances, but still. Uh, I believe they're fourth in the league in point percentage right now, second in the East, just behind Boston. So um, all things considered, I think it's been a pretty good season so far for the first uh, 40 games or so. Yeah, I mean, even that point you just made, it got me thinking right off the bat, like, is this Rangers team exciting to the rest of the league? Like, I get to watch them day in, day out. So, like, it's fun for me, but do they have as much flair as they normally have in the past years? I feel like when you take away Tarasenko and Kane, it's a little bit, you know, less attractive maybe to the overall NHL fan, but I still feel like this team is so exciting to watch night in and night out. But then there is again, that little argument where you don't have the flashes like you do when you see McDavid playing the Oilers or Jack Hughes on the Devils, um, Nathan McKinnon, Cam McCarr, Miko Randon on the Avalanche. Like there are some teams that just are, are must watch TV every night. And I don't know if the Rangers are that right now. Uh, obviously you have a guy like Artemi Panarin, who's, you know, been unbelievable this year. And then Alexi Lafreniere has shown flashes. Adam Fox has been interesting. I think since coming back from injury, he hasn't been uh, his typical self, but you know, I'm actually curious to ask you is a reason why you're not really tuning in every night is just cause it's not, you know, this, this New York Ranger, fancy, cute, pretty hockey that we've seen in years past. It's more of that nitty gritty one, three, one, uh, get to the dirty areas kind of team. A little bit of that. Don't get me wrong. I'm certainly tuning in every night, just in terms of uh, talking points, I guess, on this show. There's been some more recent headlines or kind of things that that have kind of come more out of left field. I would argue, actually, that they've been more exciting from a watchability perspective this season because a lot of what you mentioned there in terms of we're talking about the coaching impact and what Peter Laviolette's brought to the table, but with his more sort of aggressive defending style and trying to attack more up the ice uh, defensively, that's created some problems for them in terms of rush defense. And we're going to get into that a little bit, but it's also created uh, a more rush element for them themselves. Right. And so they've been um, attacking more that way, but I, I, you mentioned Panarin there and I kind of want to start with this because the level he's been playing at this season and in particular, the way he's all of a sudden chosen to play, I think has dramatically increased their entertainment value. I had someone, uh, I tweeted a link of like him scoring a goal the other day and someone responded to me and said, Panarin randomly deciding at age 32 to shave his head bald and shoot twice as much as he ever has before Mm -hmm. is a midlife crisis we can all get behind. And I think that is a perfect summary of it. And I'll pose this question to you then. Um, I was thinking about this a little bit in preparation for the show, and I I couldn't come up with anything off the top of my head in terms of a stylistic transformation like this for a player that's as established as Panarin is at this age, that's this extreme in this direction, right? If anything, what we see from players as they get into their 30s is they start to slow down a little bit, 
their own individual shot rates start to decline, right? Because they're just not getting to their spots as often. Maybe they're a step slower. The decision-making kind of grinds to a halt. And so they just get fewer looks off. And in this case, he's dramatically gone in the opposite direction where it almost is to the point where he's shooting nearly twice as often as he has at any point in his NHL career. And I can't really think of any comps to to this. And this isn't just sort of like a little blip or kind of a, a statistical aberration. We're talking about 40 games now of like a clear uh, concerted effort on his part to change the way he's playing. And I think a lot of that has to do with the criticism he faced last year in the playoffs. I mean, Artemi Pernarum was aware of what people were saying about him. He's been a regular season merchant the last couple of years playing for the Rangers. And then once the playoffs come, even though I think he was still fine in the 2020 or 2021-22 uh, conference final run, last year obviously it was a little bit more disappointing. He has those two points, I think, in game one and then doesn't see the score sheet again in the rest of that series. So I think a big thing for him was his confidence and his lack of confidence that he talked about uh, on exit day in his meetings last year. He spoke to the media and said that, you know, no matter how hard he tried, things just kept getting worse and worse and worse for him. And, uh, you know, that that wears on you, not only as a player, but as a person. And, you know, you take that into the offseason and you think about ways you can be better. And one way he can be better was shooting the puck more. I mean, he's already surpassed his goals from last year. Uh, you know, and we're about at the halfway mark, which is crazy. So um, another thing for him, too, is, you know, I think last year he was guilty of deferring to his line mates. Like, I think he played a little bit, you know, with Patrick Kane and his line mates were constantly shifting. Um, whereas this year it's been a solidified line the entire way. Granted, Philip Heedle was their center in the beginning, but Heedle gets hurt on November 2nd, I believe. So less than a month into the year. And now him, Trocek, and Lafreniere have not been separated once the entire season. Laviolette is also double shifting him very often. You know, Laviolette understands how uh, impactful Panarin is when he's at the top of his game. And not only offensively, but when Panarin's bought in defensively, it just benefits this team offensively as well. So Laviolette's touched on that a lot. He's double shifted him a lot. And it's paying off for Panarin. And I think he's having more of that aggressive mindset as opposed to, you know, making that extra third, fourth backdoor pass. Um, you can just sense that he's he's taken a whole new approach this year. And I think a lot of it has to do with the criticism he faced last year. Yeah, I mean, he's fourth in the league in goals. He's on pace for 55, I believe, at this point. I mean, he's got a point on 43.5% of every goal that the Rangers have scored as a team. And I mentioned the shot rate. I've got it down here by season for his career. 7.6 per hour. 7.9, 8.4, 7.5, 8.8, 7.7, 7.4, 7.6. You're getting a trend there. 12.6 this season. I mean, this wow. is just yeah. unheard of almost. He's sixth in the league in both uh, shots on goal and attempts. And you're right. Like he took a lot of flack. And I think generally it can be undeserved or unwarranted in a lot of cases, right? When a star player underperforms in a playoff series, especially when it's like a short one round kind of appearance and, you know, you, five, six, seven games, uh, you can have dry spells, things don't go your way, and we put out too much stock into it sometimes. In this case, though, watching that series against the Devils last year, it wasn't just that he wasn't scoring. He only had the one secondary assist at 5-on-5 of that entire series, but that line in general was just very ineffectual, right? Like the Devils' speed very clearly got to them, and they just weren't able to get looks off. And so the fact that he's playing at this level – not only in the power play where the Rangers have the top power play in the league this season, but also a five on five where now they've established this connection with him, Lafreniere and Trocek as a line, and they're just dominating territorially as well. I think that's opened up an entirely different sort of set of possibilities for this team because of the way they're playing, right? Like for the most part in past seasons, the points would be there. Eventually you'd get the counting stats and the production, but you'd always wonder, all right, well, 
at five on five, there's still a lot left to be desired. In this case, you look up and they're dominating the puck. They're dominating shots, chances, any metric you want to look at with those three guys out there. And I think that does represent like a massive change from previous seasons. And a lot of that has to do with Lexi Lafreniere, honestly. He deserves mm-hmm. so much credit. Uh, you know, he only has what 25 points right now in 39 games, which is a big jump for him, I think. But I saw a stat the other night, and, I, and excuse me if it's not correct right now. Uh, during warm-up, Madison Square Garden always throws up these little nuggets uh, on specific players. And for Lexi Lafreniere, it had him at 105 five-on-five scoring chances, which was eighth in the league and first on the team. I don't know where he is now, but Alexi Lafreniere throughout his early career has always at least made plays and had a positive impact at five-on-five. You know, he's been like third on the team in even-strength goals, and maybe the points aren't there because he hasn't really seen any first-unit power play time, and he's probably not going to as long as this five is together because, you know, like you said, they're the best power play in the NHL, and they have been consistently now for two or three seasons. So, you know, as much as I do feel for Lafreniere that he doesn't get that first power play unit time, there's nowhere really to put him right now where, you know, you'd make a significant change in, in what's already a huge success. So um, Lafreniere, though, at five on five for Panarin's production this year has been such a boost. And you see that the two of them love playing with one another. I mean, they're so happy on the ice together every day. You can see it in practice. You can see it in the games. At Panarin has had so many uh, incredible things to say about playing with Lafreniere. And vice versa, obviously. I mean, who wouldn't say anything bad? Who would say something bad about playing with Aaron? But um, you know, as, as good as Trocheck has been, also, I think Lafreniere deserves so much credit. And uh, the two goals the Rangers scored against Vancouver the other night were both off of Lafreniere rushes. Mm-hmm. No, they were. And and my colleagues at EP Ringside, Jack Fraser and David St. Louis, did a phenomenal job writing this up. So I recommend everyone goes checks it out if they haven't already. But just to summarize the sort of improvements or changes to Lafreniere's game this season. First, um, the activity and transition, which you mentioned there, kind of creating off the rush. He went, according to Corey Schneider's tracking, from the 66th percentile last season to 95th percentile in zone entry. So he's carrying in a lot more, right? They're giving him more sort of leeway to create off the rush, bring the puck in, and then make plays. And then the playmaking ability, and I think that's sort of chicken or the egg a little bit, right? When we talk about Panarin's goal scoring and shooting mentality and then Lafreniere's passing, they kind of feed into each other. But in terms of chance assists, he's gone up from 69th percentile, which was pretty nice, up to 90th. And then high danger possession uh, or high danger passes from 22nd percentile only all the way up to 99. So you mentioned that sort of chance uh, contribution and chance uh, created stat. It's a night and day in that regard. And so I know that like 21 goal pace, 53 points or whatever he's on right now in terms of raw counting stats won't necessarily blow you away, but he's played less than 50 power play minutes so far this season. And you can see it already. I mean, his nine five one five primary assists, Johnny, are already represent a career high for him in past seasons. You mentioned that whenever he was out there at five one five, he'd be productive and and he'd be a contributing member of the line, but he was almost relegated to playing this kind of like bit part sort of replacement level guy where like you would just get him to go towards the net and then stand there and try to tap it in and be the finisher on, on whatever anyone else created. And now all of a sudden, because of these changes, they've helped kind of unlock and unleash some of that creativity and problem solving as a playmaker that we saw from him as a prospect, right? There's a reason this guy was a first overall pick. And so the counting stats aren't necessarily going to blow you away by any means, but just watching him play and how much more involved he is in important ways um, does represent such a massive change. And I think is a big reason for, as as you alluded to, why Panarin has been so much more productive. 
Yeah, and you mentioned that what was it high chance passes? Yes, uh, high uh, like high danger passes. Yep, high danger passes. There, there's this thing going on with him and Panarin this year, where they have a ton of cross slot passes. I don't know what you labeled that stat as. Like Stephen Valcat always says, uh, the Royal Road, which I mm-hmm. personally like a lot, and especially because it caters to the Rangers. But there's been so many times where Lafreniere comes down his offside, and whether he cuts back and zips a pass across the seam to Panarin, or he just goes to his backhand and finds that lane to Panarin. I mean, those two have clicked on that pass a ton of times this year. It's probably only gone in two or three times for both sides. Uh, Lafreniere had a beautiful one against Edmonton in Edmonton from Panarin, and I'm blanking on the game. It might have been Washington when Panarin put one home uh, from Lafreniere, but those two have connected on that pass a ton this year, and it's something that you know everyone questioned going into the season. Can Lafreniere find comfortability playing on the on the right side and he looks even more comfortable on the right side than he ever has in the left to be honest and i think that makes sense a little bit right as a left shot coming down on his off wing all of a sudden now he's almost forced to attack the middle of the ice a little bit more and that's giving him like an advantageous starting point where he's all of a sudden now in a place where he can make a bunch of different plays as opposed to just being on a strong side and kind of being up against the boards and being really bogged out and so i think all that stuff ties together but you know credit to, to peter laviolette in terms of like finally embracing this and full-time giving him a shot to play this role because in his three previous seasons we saw him playing on his off wing with Panarin for 264 total minutes of five on five over three seasons and they've already nearly doubled that this year and so it's almost remarkable that it took this long and I believe three coaches because I think the first season was David Quinn and so the fact that it took this many seasons and coaches to finally try something like this on the one hand, that's kind of sad to think about it, but on the other, it's cool to see it finally happen and immediately provide the results that it has. Yeah, and it also takes maturity as well, right? Like, you know, I, I wouldn't put a lot of blame on David Quinn right away just because, you know, this team, you know, it, it was a pretty stacked roster, and I, I don't think Lafreniere was, you know, drafted to be a number one overall pick that was a franchise savior. You know, I think uh, sometimes those number one picks are a little bit different, right? Like, the comparisons always made is Jack Hughes. Like the devils were down in the dumps when they drafted Jack Hughes, he was brought in to completely change that franchise, which he has. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, we've talked about it for so many years now where Lafreniere and Kako, yeah, they're a one and two, but they're not like a team that you really build around. The Rangers already had the star power here. Uh, and it's kind of where do those two fit in? So it's a little bit different than typical number one, number two overall picks, but uh, granted, like you said, to Peter Laviolette's credit, I mean, he has, stuck with it and it has been successful. So there's no reason why he should have broken it up, but uh, you know, we'll see what happens if that line does slow down, how he shakes things up because you know, they've been the line that's consistently provided offense the entire year when things are going bad. It's those three that get it going in a positive light. So, you know, I'm curious to see if they go three or five games without producing a point or something, which I'm hoping doesn't happen. Uh, the decision that's made if he separates them or lets them just figure it out on their own. I kind of want to circle back just quickly before we move on to other topics with the Rangers and just tie a bow on the on the, on the Panarin part of it because I just think like it's been so underreported in, in my opinion and, and part of I, I take a little bit of blame as well, right? I should have been talking about more on this show, but just in terms of preparation for this and going back and watching all the tape from this season and diving into the numbers, just like how much more he's shooting. Do you think part of it is the fact that he's now got this combination with Lafreniere and Trocek, it allows him to actually just kind of settle into that shooter position a little bit more because previously he had obviously been producing at such a high level, but you look at the combination of line mates they tried out with him and it was like, there's a bunch of Barkley Goodrow, Dryden Hunt, Colin Blackwell, 
Jimmy VC, Vitaly Kravtsov, like you go on down the line since he came to the Rangers and it felt like the coaching philosophy was always, all right, well, let's just put whoever with him because Panarin's so good that he's going to set the table for them and give them chances regardless of who we put with him. And now in this case, he's actually got a playmaker who's playing as well as Lafreniere is, and that's allowing him to not take a back seat, but kind of defer a little bit in terms of having the puck and carrying it, and it's allowing him to settle into these shooting pockets a little bit more than than he had the luxury of previous seasons. Well, yeah, you basically just said it. I mean, Panarin is one of those players that makes everyone around him better, but he hasn't been put on a line with one of those kinds of players. Hmm. And now what we've learned is Alexi Lafreniere is a similar kind of player where maybe, you know, playing with Hedl and Kako in years past, uh, I don't know if he would be the playmaker on that line. He was probably the Maybe not the goal scorer either, I guess, because Hedl was the goal scorer for those three for the most part. But Lafreniere definitely created a lot of chances. Kako possessed the puck a lot, obviously, and created off the cycle. But, um, you know, we're learning that Lafreniere is also that player that makes those around him better. And Lafreniere has made Panarin a better player. And Panarin has talked about it. Like, he's being found when he's open. Um, you know, and when he's on a line with Dryden Hunt or Andrew Kopp and Colin Blackwell. I mean, Andrew Kopp and, and Panarin were great together, but... Again, it was never cop finding Panarin. It was Panarin finding cop. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, like you just mentioned, all those guys. And, and you know, I actually want to give credit to Colin Blackwell. He was actually really good when he was here. I like um, Colin Blackwell. I didn't mean yeah. to take that as like a flyby no, shot yeah, at Colin Blackwell. But um, but he's not Alexis Lafreniere. You yes, know, I different caliber of player, certainly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I mean, to your point, Panarin has been able to find open areas and actually be found, you know. Um, where in years past, the puck just doesn't get to him. So I think that's been a big part of it as well. Well, I've been really uh, lucky this season. I get Daryl Belfry to come on here every week uh, for about 50 minutes at a time, and we deep dive players, and we talk about sort of skill concepts, I guess, right? And it's been so cool just getting to pick his brain and kind of learn from him. And something that he keeps coming back to when we talk about shooting uh, ability or, or, or just shooting talent is how important like sequencing is for it because... On the one hand, if you just look at the numbers and the raw shot totals, they tell you one story, but you actually have to go back and watch what happened preceding the shot. And in this sense, that's what I keep coming back to when I watch Panarin, because in previous seasons, because of how much he had to set the table for others and be a playmaker, he would like hold on to the puck, right? And and we know that he likes to kind of probe around the offensive zone and play around with it. And then eventually when he'd exhaust every other option, he'd be like, all right, I'll finally, I guess I'll take this myself and I'll shoot it. Right. And that's almost as a last resort. And that's a kind of a disadvantageous position to be shooting from. Whereas in this case, you go back and you watch every single shot he's taken this season. And a lot of it is it's a real shoot first mentality in the sense that he's waiting for it. Lafreniere passes it to him and the catch and release is immaculate, right? There was the goal. Um, I believe it was against the Capitals recently yeah. where like the puck was on a stick for almost negative amount of time like a short side snipe right yeah but it wasn't like a one-timer right like he caught it and he pulled it in and then he released it in the blink of an eye and the goalie couldn't even react and it may as well have been a one-timer but that displayed sort of a special level of skill on his part and maybe that is a good reflection of kind of what we're talking about here in terms of like he's focusing more on his shooting and he's in a position to do so and i think that's also why he's scoring more goals beyond just the fact that he is shooting more yeah i mean i i don't even have an argument. I don't know. That was just a perfect way to say it. I mean, that goal specifically, like you mentioned, it was like literally bang that quick. Um, you know, it's, it's really impressive what he's done and it's always been there. Um, you know, that's the thing too. Like you think back to when he played with Patrick Kane, his rookie year, like 
this is the guy we saw, I think, right? For the most part, you know, like, yeah, he set up Kane for a lot of nice goals too, but but Patrick Kane, when he found Panarin, Panarin was ripping one-timers from the top of the circles in five-on-five play. Like, those two would just reel around the offensive zone, and they'd find, you know, an inch or two of open space and let it rip. So I think that's what we're seeing from Panarin this year. He's kind of, you know, clocked it back a bit, or I don't know if that's the term, but turn back the clock. That's what yes. I'm thinking of. And uh, thank you. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, he, he's, he's a goal scorer and he's always been capable of it. So uh, good for him. Okay. Here's my question for you then though, because despite yes. Panarin's brilliance, this team is still 18th in the league in five on five scoring as a team. And, you know, they're first in the league on the power play. So that helps bring it up in terms of the, the overall totals. But part of that, I think is because they're essentially getting like nothing offensively from the bottom of the forward lineup, right? You look in guys like Goodrow and Benino and, and Pitt, like when he's in playing, um, have been kind of zeros offensively and and whatever that's fine like those guys aren't necessarily paid to score goals and so you can't necessarily blame the fact that they're 18th on that I think a bigger issue for me is how they get Mika Zibanejad going at five on five and this isn't necessarily a new phenomenon and listen he's still on pace for 30 goals this season he's a point a game so he's certainly contributing and, and being a factor in other areas. And so I don't want to overstate his offensive struggles, but you look, he's got the five, five on five goals so far this season, which is less than Keandre Miller on his own team. And I'm a big Keandre Miller fan, certainly. And I love to see him getting more involved offensively, but with Zabinadad's usage and shooting talent, that should not be the case. And he should be scoring significantly more. And so that's my question for you, because I think that is something we keep coming back to, especially in the postseason, right? It seems like whenever they stagnate, it's how you get that line going at five on five. And then once he's humming, it just looks entirely different and everyone else gets more involved. And so I think that's something I keep coming back to when I think about the ceiling for this team and their playoff outlook in terms of freeing him up to be more of a factor as a scorer at five on five, because you know, the power play stuff's going to be there, but I think that's an important part of this equation. But also I feel like he's getting the chances. They're just not going in. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like he's, he's irrelevant out there at five on five. I mean, just based on eye tests, you know, I'm not going off any stats or anything, but there were a lot of moments early in the season when he had opportunities that just weren't fine in the back of the net. You know, I'm pretty sure Zabanjad maybe had like three goals in the first like 15 games of the year, uh, maybe even less. It might've been two. Um, so he really struggled off the bat, but those chances were there. And sometimes that's just how it goes. Right. And And especially with him, I mean, he's been known to be, probably the streakiest superstar in Rangers. And I don't know if he's a superstar on the league, but he's a superstar here for sure. Uh, streakiest superstar in New York Rangers franchise history. I mean, we've seen this guy get incredibly hot and it seems like no one can stop him. And then we see him go cold and it feels like he's never going to score again. So, um, you know, there are peaks and valleys with Mika Zibanejad at five and five, but it's not like, you know, it's not there, you know? So, uh, it's interesting. I don't know what they can do to get him going at five and five. They just put Will Cooley on the first line and he's been, you know, one of the guys that's chipped in in the bottom six at five on five in his rookie year. I believe he's got seven goals this year. I don't have it in front of me, but I think just off my, uh, my memory there, he's got seven. So hopefully Will Cooley can be that guy that gets him and Kreider going on the first line. Blake Wheeler is showing some spurts. Capo Caco didn't really have, uh, you know, much positivity on the first line this year, which is wild because he was so successful on it last year. Don't know what changed there in the offseason, but Will Cooley has earned every opportunity to play on this first line. He's been awesome. He's a 200-foot player. He throws the body. He has some skill. He shoots the puck. Um, not afraid to fight. Steps up for his teammates. I mean, he's been a huge blessing for this team this year. So to see him on the first line with those two could be something that changes the trajectory for the rest of the season. 
It could be, and I'm very curious to see them play together. I do think, and I, I know early in the season they, you know, that tied into the that lack of production that you mentioned for Zabanja at the start of the year. I want to see more Kako on that line, though, and and I yeah. thought that, you know, last year in the postseason, not much went right, pretty much from game three on for them against the Devils. We saw this like one little brief cameo of them putting Kako back together with Zabinajad and Kreider in that series. And the Devils during those shifts, it was like the first time they gave them any real sustained trouble in the offensive zone because they could just get the puck below the goal line and kind of cycle it and grind them down a little bit and sort of bully ball it with their size. And then they just went away from it. And there were a lot of missteps and things that went wrong in that series. But I think that that's something that I would have liked to see them explore more. And so I think that might be the answer, in my opinion. I know the goals weren't there early in the season, but just Kako's ability to to play make as a passer, but also uh, contribute to possession. All of a sudden, that might open Zibanejad for a bit more of those shooting opportunities. I, I just want to see them put him in a spot where he's able to post up in the slot and get regular passes coming his way for him to tee off on it, right? Because we see it on the power play and we see how lethal it can be. And that's something that he isn't really, like he's getting looks here and there, but it's not a consistent dose of them at 5-on-5 the way I think he needs. Yeah, and Kreider's certainly not a playmaker. Blake no. Wheeler is certainly not a playmaker. So it's tough. Well, to pri- prime Blake Wheeler would have been a different story, but I think yes, at this yes, stage yes. of his career, it's a it's a bit of a different look. Five years ago, yes, Blake Wheeler is a playmaker. Uh, where he is right now, certainly not. And and people have been a little bit misskewed because they thought they were getting the Blake Wheeler five years ago. But you got a guy who, who's making 800K. Like, he shouldn't be looked over of what he's making just because of his name and what he used to be. Like, this is an 800K player right now. Um, and I don't know if you disagree or agree with that. I'm actually curious on your thoughts. Yeah, uh, I would say he he has, he has looks like an 800K player. Uh, yeah. at this point but it, it's fine right like last year when he he's was getting paid, the punching he, bag he, he's become you know the, the scapegoat for everything right well it's because of of the name and sort of what he represents in league circles and and i guess the idea of what he used to be right but you're right if you strip yeah. away the name and everything fair. and you just you, you pay him 800k and you see what you're getting it's like yeah this is this is what it is in 2024 yeah, if he's so. making four million a year it's a different story but he's making the 800k that he should be making right now yeah but also, I think that the fact that we've seen as much of him on that line as we have probably brings you back to, I know there's been injuries, right? But when we're thinking about sort of what this team is going to do around the deadline or what potential needs are for them between now and and the postseason, figuring out that right wing in the top six and sort of figuring out who's going to play in that role long term is, I think, an important part of this, right? It's probably number one at this point, right? Well, depending on Philip Heedle's status, uh, I would say that's one. But if Heedle isn't returning, I think having a third-line center is probably number one. Um, but I think all signs point toward Heedle making a comeback for the playoffs. Uh, you know, obviously his progression right now has been a little bit slower than most people would have thought. He's back home in Czechia working out with the trainers that he works with over the summer, um, which is both good and bad because you want to see him with the team. You want to see him with the guys. But if he's not playing, it's probably bad for his mental to be here. So it's good for him to be back home where he can be with family. And, you know, that's that's something that people forget too. Like, you know, being injured is not easy. And when you're injured and you're not from this country and you don't really have anyone to lean on aside from your teammates probably, when you're left all alone on road trips and whatnot, it could be challenging. So um, I thought it was the right move to send Heedle home. And, you know, hopefully that's been a, a positive progression for him. But, yeah, I think come trade deadline time, you know, the name that, that I've – thrown out there that I'd love to see come back and that I think most Ranger fans would love to see come back is Frank Petrano. Um, you know, he's been very, very vocal that he loves New York City. 
he loved his time here, even though it was only five months, but uh, he thrived here. I think he had, you know, off the top of my head, I think it was like eight goals in 21 games in the regular season. Is that right? I'll be yep. very impressed with myself if it is. That's right. I'll take your, I'll take your word for it. It sounds okay. right. Okay. I know. I remember he was very productive. Yeah, he was incredibly productive in the playoffs as well. Um, and he was a well-liked guy here. So uh, if that's possible, I think he has one year left on his deal, which yeah. I believe at 3.5. Yeah, 3.65. And I guess 3.65. that's the only reason I push back. I love the fit and I love the idea. I just don't know if this Rangers team's in a position where they can really afford to take on any future money, uh, especially at the 3.65. Now, obviously, I think any deal would involve the Ducks retaining and potentially even doing one of these modern trades we've seen where you get a third team involved and really bring that salary down quite a bit and, and pay for it accordingly. But um, yeah, I, I think we're probably looking more of the, the pure sort of rental expiring deal route just because they've got some bonuses upcoming with the Wheeler and quick contracts, right? They've got Lindgren and Kako and Schneider as RFAs, and they don't really have any significant money coming off the book. I know the cap's going up 5% next season, but uh, it's still like, it was very tight this off season and they had to make it work with their RFAs. I think it's going to become even more so next season. And so I don't love the idea or I don't think it's very plausible for them to take on any future money. But yeah, I mean, if you're talking about skill sets, like that's certainly one that I'd be very intrigued by for this team. And I think they would try to make it work with him because I believe he was well-loved by the organization when he was here. And uh, it seems to be like a pretty good two-way street between the player and the organization. So, you know, maybe there this summer there's a potential buyout for Barclay Goodrow. I think that's one uh, contract that most people want to see come off the books for the most part. Um, I think he has, what, two years left, maybe three years left, Barclay Goodrow. I'm, I'm not sure um, how many years left on his deal, but I think he's making 3.5, 3.6. And, you know, he's been a fourth-line guy. He shouldn't really be making that much. And, and again, it's not a knock on Goudreau. Um, You know, I think if you – you know, I, I think I said it yesterday on a show. If you flopped the money that Goudreau and Eric Gustafson were making, no one would bat an eye because Eric Gustafson's been phenomenal this year, and he's been way better than a nine-two-five player. Um, but, you know, it's just how the NHL works with money, right? You got to perform to what you're being paid for. No, I agree with that. I <laughs> – what I'd be interested by is a team like the Kraken. I know that they've been winning recently, right? They've been in a bit of a run themselves. No, 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 in terms of a trade, right? In terms of like looking for a fit. I know that, uh, you know, Don Lustrician has them at about 30% now to make the playoffs. We'll see how the next couple of weeks go before the trade deadline. But with guys like, you know, either a, a Jordan Eberle on the right wing, who I think certainly has a very intriguing skill set for this Rangers team, or an Alex Wenberg down the middle, both guys are expiring, which I like. And could be unreasonable retain cap hits. So that'd be a team that I was kind of thinking about um, for yeah, the Rangers as a trade partner. But yeah. yeah, I'd be certainly interested in that. Okay, uh, Johnny, let's take a quick break here. And then when we come back, we'll uh, we'll finish our conversation back up and keep chatting about the New York Rangers. You are listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sports Night Radio Network. All right, we're back here on the Hockey PDO cast with Johnny Lazarus. We're talking Rangers. Johnny, so we talked about the forward group a little bit. You mentioned uh, in passing Adam Fox after his injury, and you know I was I was I agreed with you um, in just watching these games play based on the eye test. He hasn't quite looked like himself since he's come back from injury, right? The mo- the standard um, mobility and kind of elusiveness that we've come to appreciate and love from his game hasn't been there, and it makes sense after the knee injury he had. If anything, it's it's kind of remarkable that he missed this little time as he did after how bad that injury initially looked. The numbers don't really back that up. 
like I was looking at it pre and post injury and it's relatively the same, right? Like the individual scoring has dried up a little bit, but he's been pretty unlucky in terms of pucks going in when he's been on the ice. And so um, I, I just kind of wanted to pass on that note because I went into it expecting to see some sort of dramatic drop off because it hasn't looked quite the same to my eye, uh, much like yours, but he's been fine for the most part. And, and I think maybe just partly, you know, I was really excited to watch that not head to head matchup. Cause it's like two defensemen are never really going to go head to head. But when the Canucks were in town, just watching Quinn Hughes and level he was playing at, and then being excited to see them go back and forth and, and sort of trade punches on the ice. And, and it was very one-sided in that regard with the Canucks taking that game. But um, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what the rest of the season looks like from Fox. And if he can sort of, start to resemble uh, more of the player that we've become accustomed to. Well, yeah, like you said, Dimitri, he's been fine, but we're used to seeing him be exceptional, right? So yeah, nor, nor Norris caliber. Yeah. Exactly. So I think that's something that's been a little bit different. But again, like, you know, he's a guy who, you know, some fans have been a little bit harder on him as of late, um, you know, saying he's been playing, you know, not so well. But, uh, you know, it's interesting too. My good buddy Chris Jastrzemski, who is better known as Jazz on TNT, the, the researcher for them, uh, I texted him the other night about time on ice spent with Fox and Panarin versus like the rest of the league with a you know pretty high caliber defenseman and a superstar. Fox and Panarin were at least in the bottom five of the names that I asked about, which was McAvoy, Pasternak, uh, Hughes, and Besser. Also Hughes, Pedersen, um, McDavid, and Bouchard, and I believe. McKinnon and McCarr and those guys appear to always be on the ice together where for some reason I don't know if it's Laviolette and how he just has his matchups and whatnot Fox and Panarin have only been on the ice together for like 183 minutes at least for what it was the other night um, I believe it was after the Vancouver game so they played one game oh no they haven't even played a game in between um, so yeah it was 183 minutes after last night or after Monday night sorry my mind's all over the place but uh, you know what I'm saying so I think that's something to take into effect too, where if you don't have your best defenseman out there with your best forwards, a lot of the time it's going to show in the production. Um, so I think that's something maybe the Rangers can take note of and try to get those two out together a little bit more. Yeah, that's a good, good shout. I, I think, you know, let's pivot a little bit here and talk about the coaching. You mentioned Laviolette there, right? Because I think going, I was very intrigued to see what it would look like heading into the season and everything we heard in the preseason was very encouraging in terms of the tactical changes they were going to implement and how he wanted them to play. And I think for the most part, we've seen that. Uh, it's funny, recently I've like seen a lot of quotes of players sort of being like, yeah, you know, at the start it was Gerard Glantz kind of like let us do whatever we want approach was, was fine, but it would have been nice to have you know, more sort of hands-on coaching at times, even in, in, forget the games, even in like practices and stuff like that in between games. And that's something you're certainly historically going to get from Peter Laviolette, right? And it, whether you want to call it kind of like management or even micromanagement in, in some cases, like he wants his, he wants control of everything, right? He wants his hand and all the jars. And so um, seeing that so far this season, I think it makes a lot of sense for a team that's in a win now competitive window like they are, right? Like I I think this is true for most coaches where their shelf life can be kind of short in today's NHL where you come in, you have immediate results, and then the message can kind of become a bit stale and maybe you wear all your welcome. So three, four years down the line, I'm not sure if this is going to be a fit, but for year one and year two, um, it seems like the fit between coach and team makes a lot of sense in that regard. Well, like you said, it's win now. So four yep. years from now, who knows what their window is going to be. That, that's, right? some, that's, that's somebody else's problem. Yeah, exactly. Well, but but also it's just the way the roster is built. Four years from now, who who the hell knows what this team looks like? 
Um, you know, this isn't really a group that's building towards something. It's building, it, it's been built, right? Like this is kind of what, what you're going at with. So um, they have to figure it out in the next one to three years, I'd say. Uh, so, you know, it, it's just the way it is, but Lavi let's message, you know, I think he's been successful everywhere he's went in his first year. Right. Like, I think that's something that's kind of carried and stuck with him a little bit. And, uh, you know, maybe I, I said last year, Gallant might've deserved one more year. You know, I think a first round upset against a really good devil's team that had a really strong regular season, you know, shouldn't really be his ending, but with the roster he had, y- you have to get out of the first round. You just, you have to. Um, so I think he kind of had a tough scenario that, that was brought upon him. Um, but the success that Gallant had in the regular season speaks for itself. I mean, this team was, you know, beyond incredible for, for two straight years. Last year was a little bit more of a, you know, maybe some, some rough patches here and there, but, um, you know, they finished strong and Chesterkin wasn't at the level he was at the year before, but he hasn't been that way this year either. And they're still finding ways to win. Um, so I think that's been the biggest thing too with Laviolette is that the Rangers are winning in so many different ways, uh, which last year wasn't really the case. Um, you know, they took upon this no quit in New York motto under Gallant, which I personally hate because that just, you know, basically says, Hey, we're never going to win convincingly, (laughs) you know, like it's just no quit. New York means we're probably going to struggle here and there, but we're going to claw our way back. And well, it also took on an added sense of irony as you watch that game seven against the devils unfold. Fully quit. A lot of quit in New York in game seven, (laughs) uh, which was one of my favorite jokes this summer, but you know what I mean? Like, like there hasn't really been many games and, and granted, you know, there's been games, I think in Montreal on Saturday, they go down three, nothing, come back, but they fall short. Um, you know, there has been some of those spurts where they do have that, you know, quote unquote, no quit, but the games they're winning, which in years past have differed. There's been so many games too, where the Rangers have a one goal lead in the last four minutes and they just get absolutely peppered mm. and you rely on your goalie to bail you out. And that hasn't really been the case this year. Um, so, yeah, I think that's credit to Lobby Led as well. And I think I rambled on a little bit. No, no. Well, uh, listen, uh, the thing that I really like and appreciate about Lobby Led as a coach, beyond all that stuff in terms of like getting a lot out of his players and the motivation and all that and how demanding he can be for in, in a good way is his like tactical preparedness, right? And like him realizing like what team he has and then acting accordingly. I think back to that playoff series. Um, with the Capitals and the Panthers two years ago in round one, right? Where the Panthers come in as the president's trophy champion with so much more talent than that Capitals team had. And the Capitals gave them a real scare where they almost went up three, one in that series and and were really taking it to them for stretches of it. And there a controversy in that game too. Yeah, there, there, there was, it certainly could have gone completely South for Florida and been a one-sided series. I I, I forget the details of it, but I I do remember. I remember. remember. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off, but but the Caps had a one goal lead in Game Four, and someone went for the empty net. It was called an icing, and the mm. Panthers ended up scoring, uh, I think, on that six on five. So they had a chance to ice it, but they missed by like an inch. Yeah, well, I just remember that it was it wasn't very aesthetically pleasing, but he definitely sort of laid the groundwork for what Tampa Bay would do to him to an even greater effect in the following round when they swept Florida, and he just completely ground that high flying offense to a halt right and it was like very it was passive defending in terms of in the neutral zone with like the one three one but also in ways it was very calculated and aggressive as well and the ability to sort of like adjust like that and and implement stuff and 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 do sit do things to a team in a playoff series is very important if you want to make a long run and i know that this rangers team made that eastern conference final run two years ago under galant 
but he was much more, we say it jokingly, but he really was. And I think he even admits much like he's a vibes coach, right? Like he, he like uh, just wants everyone to be feeling good and playing well, but there wasn't necessarily any tactical genius involved to it. And so in this case, I think the value of this will be shown if anything in a long playoff run. But right now I'm kind of curious for your take in terms of like on the ice from a schematical perspective, if you're seeing anything different in terms of that defending in the neutral zone and whether they're involving defense in more of the way they promised too early in the season and kind of how that has played into all this, right? Because I think it's certainly a great system for a guy like Keandre Miller, who I really want to see embrace that part of his game a bit more. Maybe that would potentially explain a little bit why Adam Fox's play hasn't been the way we've come to expect because he's a bit more of a sort of like slow it down freelancer as opposed to just kind of moving north-south the way that I think Pierre, Peter Lavia would ideally want his defenseman to play. Well, you just took the words out of my mouth because Keandre Miller was the example I was going to give. Yeah, um, he's like made in a lab to play the way Peter Laviolette wants his defenseman to play. Legit, and I've talked to him about it this year, um, and he still says, he, he says it every single time we ask, he doesn't feel like he's playing his best hockey. And uh, that might be the case defensively because Keandre, there's been times where, you know, I think everyone would agree with his frame. He's got to be a little bit tougher. Um, in the D zone, I think sometimes he just plays a little bit too soft and, you know, I wasn't a tough guy, so I have a hard time telling someone to be a little bit tougher, but you know, when you're that big, you got to just throw the body a little bit more, maybe even just like box guys out a little bit more, I think just playing too loose in the D zone, but what he's done offensively, I mean, there's been so many cases this year where the Rangers are set back in the neutral zone, clogging up the middle and Keandre picks off a breakup, uh, a breakout pass and takes it in the other way and creates offense off of it. I mean, I've seen that time and time again, I think three or four of his goals have, have come from that as well, um, where he picks off a pass in the neutral zone and creates offense off of it. So Keandre has been the perfect example of what you were just alluding to. And, you know, I, I hate to use that example because you, you just said the name for me. You kind of teed me up perfectly. Um, but that's also not Adam Fox's game. You know, Fox is not a north-south speed guy. Uh, he's more of that east-west, um, you know, open up everyone else on the ice kind of player. Like, you know, rarely do you see, and, and everyone, you know, this is something I'd love to debate with you too, because there's always the Fox McCarr comparisons, right? Like a lot of people love that discussion. They are two completely different players. Mm-hmm. Cal McCarr can create scoring chances for himself better than any defenseman that I know in the NHL. Adam Fox can create scoring chances for his teammates better than anyone in the NHL that I know. I think that's what separates them. If you put Adam Fox and Cal McCarr on the San Jose Sharks, Cam McCarr is going to have more points than Fox because Cam McCarr is going to create on his own. He's going to create scoring chances. He's going to finish and he's going to score goals. He'll probably put up 20, but Adam Fox and the Sharks, he's not going to produce as much as Cam McCarr would because he doesn't have the guys around him that are going to finish and that are going to get open. So I think that's a huge argument between the two players. And, uh, you know, maybe Fox, um, for whatever reason, hasn't been able to find that North-South game this year. Uh, but Keandre has and Eric Gustafson has. Um, and that's really it that, that, go, that goes for the Rangers offensive defenseman. Um, a guy that's really thrived this year, though, that I think has been the most consistent guy in the blue line for the Rangers this year and call me crazy, Jacob Truba. He doesn't really do much offensively as far as creating, but he scored a couple goals in, need, in needed times, and the way he's defending this year has been the best I've seen him defend since his time spent in a New York Rangers jersey. Um, and he's been worth every single penny of that $8 million contract this season. Well, I think that was a great differentiation between Makar and Fox that you laid out there. And I would also add to it that the perfect combination between the two is the way that Quinn Hughes has played this season. 
Yep. Right. 100%. And we we've uh-huh. seen it at times, depending on what they need from him. He's obviously been much more aggressive as a shooter and scorer himself this season than he has been in years past. But in terms of putting all that together, I think that's why he's having the type of season he has and, and is a Norris favorite right now. Um, okay, one final note on this that kind of ties the bow on on the defensive side of things and the coaching. Um, and you mentioned uh our pal Steven and Val- uh, Steve Valiquette earlier and, and some of his stats, which I always love when he posts like the report cards the for the Rangers and stuff. And I think uh, an important note in his Rangers profile that he had in there was, you know, they're really good at end zone defending this season. And I, I believe they're top, like they're 10th in goals against, they're 10th in expected goals against. And and that's really good. The one issue they've had is they're dead last in defending oh off gosh. of the rush this season. And now at the same time, I believe they're like fourth or fifth in the league in creating themselves off the rush and maybe those two are kind of inextricable in a way where if you're pushing more uh, north-south yourself off the rush, you're going to give back stuff the other way, and that kind of comes with the territory. So it might be just as simple as that. But I'm kind of curious for your take on that because obviously that's very concerning, especially when you look at the sort of pace and skill that you're going to have to go up against in any postseason series against most teams you're going to run into. If you're bleeding chances off the rush that way, that's scary. And I think that could in large part explain why Igor Shosturkin's save percentage isn't at the level we've become accustomed to, right? Because it's down to 904. And that's, you know, surprising considering where it's been in the past. At the same time, it's still above league average. And I believe his like expected save percentage is in the 880s or something like that. And so he's still outperformed it based on the chances they've given up in front of him. So it's weird because I think they are good defensively in front of him. But in certain areas, when they do give up a chance, it's almost catastrophic, right? It's like to a lesser scale, what we saw early in the season with the Oilers, where a lot of the numbers actually had them pretty good defensively. And then all of a sudden, when they would give up a chance, it would just be a great A off the rush. And most goalies are going to have difficulty with that. And it feels like that's what's been happening here, uh, at least to some extent with the Rangers and just Turkin. Well, it comes down to one thing, and it's speed. They're not fast enough to get up and down the ice and keep up with everybody. I mean, I watched that. Vegas Golden Knights, Colorado Avalanche game last night, and those two teams are flying. The pace in that game is is incredible, the way those two teams skate. I mean, I actually want to ask you, who's number one right now in defending the rush? If, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably like, what, Carolina? Yeah, they're always up there. They're always up there. I mean, Vegas is is always, they're like one of the few teams that can get away with attacking very aggressively off the rush themselves and never giving stuff up back as well because of the personnel they have, right, and, this, and the way they play. So they're like a rarity in that regard. Generally, the teams that are really good at attacking off the rush are really bad at defending themselves because they get into that sort of trading chances, track mean environment. And so that's, that's I guess, kind of a slippery slope for a lot of teams. So maybe that would be a cause for concern for the Rangers where it's good that they're creating more off the rush, but if it's a net negative in terms of your ability to come back and defend in that way, then all of a sudden that can become a real problem. Yeah, but they're like I said before too. They're just not fast enough to play that yeah. way. I mean, that was a huge issue going into this year. Was how do you address the team speed? That's why they got killed against the Devils because the Devils would fly up and down the ice and skate all around them. Um, and granted, like they have fast players, but as a team, they're not very quick. Mm-hmm. You know, like the fast players I think of are like Vinny Trocheck. Chris Kreider has you know explosive speed, but I don't know if he plays the game in a fast way. If that makes sense. You know, he's not like quick out of the corners or anything east west. He's just up and down speed. Um, you know, I think Alexi Lafreniere has actually improved a lot in his skating. Mm-hmm. I consider him to be a faster skater. But like as far as the forwards go, like that's really it. 
like maybe Will Cooley can be considered fast. Mika Zibanejad and 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 uh, Artemi Panarin. Don't get me wrong; they're fine skaters, but I wouldn't call them speed demons. Um, you know what I mean? So this isn't really a fast forward group for the most part. Yeah, I'd say more of those guys are more functional, yeah, fast as opposed to getting into a track meet. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, Johnny, I'll uh, let's put a bow on it here and let's get out of here. I'll let you plug some stuff on the way out because you've obviously got a lot going yourself with your new show and everything. So I'll let you uh, let the listeners know a little bit about that and plug some stuff. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to plug my new show morning cup of hockey. Uh, it's every Monday through Thursday, 9am Eastern time on the daily face off YouTube channel. I do with my partner, Colby Cohen, who has been a mentor of mine for the last four or five years, uh, former NHL player, won a national championship at BU scored the overtime winning goal in the natty ship. Um, great guy. And uh, you know, we bring on awesome guests. Like today we had, uh, Kevin Kurz from The Athletic covering the Flyers to talk about the drama last night and Andrew Raycroft who covers the Bruins does stuff with Nesson, former NHL goalie uh, you know we try to just get as many different people we'd love to have you Dimitri as well you know in the hockey world uh, come on with us every morning and just talk about the trending topics in the NHL so you can just catch that show that's really all I want to plug right now um, and anything else you can just follow me on Twitter at jlazzy23 and I'm always reposting Dimitri's videos of his <laughs> mixtapes that he posts I love them and my favorite one as of late was Ilya Kovalchuk because he was unbelievable as a player when I was growing up. I loved watching Kovalchuk. Um, but yeah, that's really all I got. And Dimitri, thank you so much. I really do love your work and uh, appreciate you having me on. It's great to finally chat with you. Yeah, it was great to have you on finally, buddy. Keep up the great work. My only plug here is for everyone to join the PDOcast Discord server. The invite link is in the show notes. We got really good chats in there on a daily basis watching the games, and we take mailbag questions there for every Friday. So get in there if you aren't already. And that's going to be it for today. Uh, we'll be back tomorrow with plenty more of the Hockey PDOcast. So thank you, as always, for listening to us here on the Sportsnet Radio Network.